Hello and welcome again to The Rising Tide, the podcast targeting the major political issues of our time. Now, whilst various aspects of Brexit have almost been flogged to death at this stage, one that hasn't, and which is of huge importance to everyone on this island, is the subject of Brexit and Irish unity. And to discuss that issue, I'm joined by Aintu party leader, Pather Tobin. Pather, it appears that what is still a very fragile situation here in Ireland was completely ignored during the Brexit referendum debate. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, um, it, it always amazes me that um, the Tories have so little interest or so little knowledge with regards to what happens in Ireland. And you know, people would have seen recently that they uh, assigned Karen Bradley to the, the Secretary of State for the North. And you know, Karen would have very little understanding of what's going on in the North and has like, obviously got herself into major trouble uh, with the language she's used around legacy issues uh, in the North of Ireland. And I think that's one of the things that has switched many people, North and South, onto the issue of unity. That we have a system in Ireland, 100 years after the first doll, whereby the whims and the egos of the Tories actually determine whether we can move people, product, or services around our own country. Like, it's incredible that, you know, men and women fought 100 years ago for self-determination. Um, and yet, today, uh, you know, two years after the the... the North voted to remain in the EU, the Tories have simply got that decision, they have rolled it into a paper ball and they've thrown it into the waste paper basket because self-determination still does, does not exist for people in the North of Ireland and that's a dangerous thing. Wasn't it astonishing to many that Karen Bradley actually didn't know before she went there that there was a very serious divide in terms of who would vote nationalist and who would vote unionist? It is like it's it's incredible the lack of knowledge that exists in London. And some people say that we live in, in a kind of a one way mirror because we consume the British uh, media at a serious rate through television and, and newspaper, but they consume very little of any of our uh, media. And they don't see what's happening in Ireland, they don't understand it whatsoever, and yet they are in control of what's happening. So the North is a, an afterthought, an appendage uh, to their uh, considerations. But that has major difficulty to us. Now, in, in Aintu's view, self-determination is really important. We believe that decisions made the closer to the people they affect are better decisions because you can influence them and you can hold people to account. And indeed, you know, the Irish historical experience would show that people like Jeremiah, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa knew from the famine that, you know, if decisions were being made in London, they would never affect uh, people in, in Ireland uh, the best way. So, and that's one of the reasons why the famine was, was so extreme. Had we had a government in Ireland during the famine, there's no doubt in my mind there would have been serious amelioration to the challenges that were experienced uh, at the time. And I would always ask people this simple question. Now, would you be happy if your friend that you trust and love made your decisions for you for the rest of your life? And most people would say absolutely not. Because when we make decisions for ourselves, for sure we'll be making mistakes, but we still make better decisions for ourselves than anybody else will. And so it is with nation states. If Berlin, Brussels or London make a decision, they're simply not going to make the best decision for Ireland. And that is, it's human nature that is the case. So that's why for AIM2 it's very important that Irish people simply make decisions for what happens on the island of Ireland. And, you know, to leave it to Boris Johnson, to Theresa May, Jacob uh, Rees-Mogg to make decisions for us is just ludicrous. And I think that's why you'll see far more Irish people switched on to the logic of Irish unity now than ever before. Well, looking at Brexit itself, did it surprise you that Brexit supporters themselves 
had no plan for what was going to happen. It's almost as if they, they didn't feel they were going to win and therefore had no plans. It's, it's, it, is, it is shocking. Uh, sometimes we look at the Irish political system and we see it dysfunctional, but in comparison to London's political system, it looks very well. And uh, I don't think for a second that uh, David Cameron thought that you know, they were going to lose that particular referendum. Um, but I, I honestly think that we are in a slightly similar situation now in that uh, if you ask Simon Coveney or Leo Varadkar, you know, what plans do they have uh, for after a hard Brexit? They'll shrug. They'll say there is no plan with regards to what happens in Ireland after a hard Brexit. Uh, and that's actually equally as scary. Are they afraid to say that they have plans? Uh, you know, is, is this political? Is there some reason why they won't admit that, perhaps? I think you're right. I think there's a, there's a chunk of uh, the spin factory within the government who are of the view that they do not want to be associated as the government that implemented a hard border uh, in the north of Ireland. Um, but there's also a view there as well that the establishment parties in the south, while they talk the talk around Irish unity, they don't want Irish unity. There was a, the, the previous Republican TD for me, there was a, uh, to me, was a man by the name of Liam Mellows. And Liam Mellows uh, prophesied, if you like, that if there arose a border in Ireland, they would arise two establishments in Ireland that would then become to depend on the border for their own political power. And that's come to pass. So Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael know that if there is unity, they would become, they would change from the parties of natural power in the, in Ireland, to the south of Ireland to minor regional parties in an all-Ireland uh, political sphere. And I think their self-interest is the reason why they refuse to progress uh, towards Irish unity. So if there was unity, then that would probably be broken. So do you think it overall would improve our lives on the island? First of all, yes. Like My instinct in all of this would be, I would be an incrementalist by nature. So um, Sinn Féin would come out on a regular basis and say, we have to have a border poll now, and that's it. And they would leave it there, They'd leave it hang uh, there. But they would never, let's say, properly sell the logic of it. And also, they don't do the preparation to it. So I would see the border, for example, as a wall with a thousand blocks. Each one of those blocks, a particular issue that affects individual human beings' lives. And that if you take down that block, would have a positive effect on, on people's experience. So, for example, a cross-border ambulance service, a cross-border air ambulance service, an All-Ireland excise duty, an All-Ireland soccer team, um, an All-Ireland education uh, uh, process. Like About a year, two years ago, I uh, carried out a study into the All-Ireland economy. It's the first TD since partition to carry out a study in the Oireachtas on an All-Ireland economy. I spoke to well over 100 academics, uh, business people, uh, educationalists, uh, trade unionists, farmers, and all of those agreed, no matter what their background was, that if we plan together, if we fund together, and if we deliver services together, they're simply better services, it's more efficient, they cost less. And that's the logic, I suppose, of, of an All-Ireland economy, and the logic of st that step change, that incrementalist step change towards unity. Well, the Good Friday Agreement promised the All-Ireland economy. Uh, are there signs of it even at this stage? I mean, the, the medical aspect of, say, someone like somebody from Donegal getting into Balcom McGalvin to, to be looked after there, small stages like that. There is, first of all, the, when the Good Friday Agreement was discussed, first of all, it really sold the All Ireland economy. And there were positive changes made. And um, I believe that those positive changes have stalled. So, yes, indeed, there are some uh, occurrences of people being able to access healthcare in. Uh, the north of Ireland. 
There is Intertrade Ireland, which is an All-Ireland Enterprise Development Body, um, and there are you know, some other aspects. But it's, it's, the development has been arrested. So in other words, we have seen very little of any change happen in the last probably 15 years. For example, Intertrade Ireland has a cap on the number of people it can employ. So Intertrade Ireland spends a euro, and it creates probably about two euros in the economy. So there's a, an economic logic to investment in Intertrade Ireland. And yet, the government can't give more money to Intertrade Ireland to do more work. They're stopped in doing that. And still, there is a lot of, let's say, uh, lack of convergence. Business wants the path of least resistance. And yet, if I was to employ somebody from Belfast, I'd have to worry about where do I pay them? Do I pay them uh, in the north or in the south? Where do I pay the tax? How, you know, where, put money into a bank account? Uh, where does it, it transfer from? Uh, the exchange rate, rate differentials are going to cause difficulties to a person's long-term uh, earnings, uh, etc. You know, uh, excise duties. You know, every year the border is a competitive advantage for criminals. The, like, if you were to, if you were a criminal and you wanted to design a system whereby you could make lots of money, you would design the border because it allows all these differentials for you to be able to smuggle products through, and then you can, if you're, let's say, if you're being chased by the Gardaí, you can run through this imaginary line, and the Gardaí have to stop directly at it. And right now, the country has been hammered along the border by all of these um, uh, ATM uh, thefts, and they're happening along the border for logical reasons, because it's a space for criminality to operate. So what I'm saying is that we need to have a, a, a police force that starts to operate on an All-Ireland basis. We need to get rid of these uh, differences in excise that mean that one year um, the north of Ireland is a boom town and the, and, and the south of Ireland is a ghost town. We see all the petrol stations close in the south of Ireland. And then we see the flip of that in two or three years because of changes of excise or changes of uh, currency. You people can't long-term invest in a particular area with these types of in, that type of instability. So, the logic for me is very plainly clear. Even if you don't want to unite Ireland, let's start working towards convergence north and south for our own economic benefits. And that's the best way to ameliorate the challenges of Brexit. Well, has Brexit then put a, a roadblock on the way to convergence? Has it been stalled by that or the potential for what might happen now? It has. Brexit is a real and present danger to people's ability to survive. So, for example, if you're along the border and you're involved in a milk-producing uh, company, if you're creating, you know, uh, milk powder uh, for the Chinese market, and you have, you work to European standards and regulations, and there's a hard Brexit, and 30% of your content is coming from across the border, you can no longer add that milk into your products and still achieve the same regulatory uh, standards uh, and have that mark of a European product. Uh, product. So the, the, the Brexit, the hard Brexit situation is a, is a material cost to people. Uh, and yet uh, Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar are doing nothing to try and fight against that. So for example, one of the ways AIM2 would, 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 would focus on that would be to try and iron out the, uh, the lack of, let's say, ability to, to function that they already exists there that we can control. So infrastructure would be one of those. Now, Fine Gael pulled 27 million euros of an investment into the A5, that's the Dublin to Derry Road, just about three weeks ago because of the National Children's Hospital fiasco. But this is the opposite time they should be. At this time of crisis north-south, 
they should be doubling the investment into north-south infrastructure to make it easier to do trade uh, there. But unfortunately, they're going in the wrong direction. And of course, the people of Donegal have always felt cut off by the fact that they have just such a difficult journey to get themselves to Dublin, to the capital, and that that A5 would have been an, an amazing benefit to them in terms of time. But even just psychologically, it would have made them feel that they had more contact with Dublin. For sure, if you were to look at a map of Ireland, 32 counties, and you were to fill in infrastructure onto that map, you would see that there's a quarter of Ireland, really, from uh, Belfast over towards maybe Sligo and onto towards Galway, that is just a, a wasteland, a desert, with regards to real infrastructure. And as a result, the uh, economic experience of those people is radically different from the rest of Ireland. Like one of the main uh, pillars of AIM2 is regional development. We are a city-state uh, with an overheating city. We have a sprawling commuter belt, and we have much of the regions emptying out. And Donegal and the northwest would actually be most hit with regards to that. Uh, and to be honest, it gets lip service from the establishment. You mentioned earlier about bringing decisions closer to the people. So would you see a strengthening of local government as part of that? We would aim to, like Ireland, a fierce centralised state democratically. So um, most of the decisions are made on a, on a centralised basis. And even whatever decisions are made by county councils, you know, the uh, officials within the county councils would have far more power than elected representatives. Uh, and if you want a proper functioning democracy where decisions are made closer to the people, you would strengthen those local authorities. I would even go a step further. The Western Development Commission uh, is a really good example of local counties working to develop their economies. Uh, and, you know, I would be seeing that we should be replicating the Western Development Commission, uh, you know, a Border Development Commission, a Southwestern Development Commission, where we actually start to devolve power and decision-making and fundraising and expenditure uh, down to the regions as well to make sure that they have a, a really decent chance of competing against Dublin. But there seems to be a bit of a flight at the moment from local government. People are saying, look, I'm part-time in this job. I can't keep my own job and do this job. People are complaining that I'm getting expenses. Is there a time then needed for, say, a full-time permanent local government, uh, councillors and people that are working on that level? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's probably not a popular thing to say, but if you want decent councillors, you're going to have to fund decent councillors. Uh, and, uh, you know, right now it is very, very difficult for people who are working full-time, who are commuting a couple of hours a day, who are looking after their families, to be able to work maybe another, you know, 15, 20 hours a week uh, on their council work. It's, it's a very demanding job. And as a result, it's even more difficult now to get people to do that kind of... Uh, to do that role. And listen, if, if, if you want quality decisions made and, and, and quality services provided in your local authorities, you need quality people to do that. Mm. Well, efforts are being made in London at the moment, it seems, to kick Brexit so far down the road that the Brexiteers will need binoculars to see it and that they're not still without the hope, though, that there might be a no deal. I mean, is that a really, really damaging situation? Well, I, I think there's, um, it's very hard to estimate what the Brits are going to do around the whole issue of Brexit. Um, it's, I don't think any, anybody would be very brave to say for sure what's going to happen. My own is, instinct in this is that the only way that Theresa May's deal can be achieved and that the backstop can be achieved, and I've said this from the start, is if there is an agreement between the Labour Party and the Tories. That's the only way it's going to happen. Um, the DUP have shown that they are fair-weather friends to uh, Brexit. In reality, the union is the most important issue there, and they will 
they will be treacherous uh, to the to the, the hardcore Brexiteers if they feel uh, in any way that their uh, their union is, is is threatened. I think what we need to look at in Ireland is what can we do to ameliorate the worst excesses of it. And there are numbers of things in our power. First of all, we need to make sure that Stormont is uh, uh, functioning at some level. Now, the Good Friday Agreement was a fantastic agreement. It brought about a peace that most people think that didn't expect to ever happen. At least when I was a kid growing up, the troubles really did seem intractable. But with the Good Friday Agreement, we had Stormont set up uh, and we had some level of power sharing happening. But in my view, Stormont as it currently stands is destined to fail. And in my experience from watching Stormont very closely and being there and, and being involved in negotiations previously, is that at very best Stormont is a carve up between Sinn Féin and the DUP for funds for their own communities. At worst it is a, 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 a system of stalemate whereby DUP and Sinn Féin just do their best to stop the other crowd uh, actually achieving anything whatsoever. So I've no doubt if you resurrect Stormont in its current uh, situation, it's going to fall again uh, after a period of uh, two or three years of more dysfunction. So we need to go beyond the Good Friday Agreement with regards to uh, the, the, the development of, of, St of Stormont. We need, in, in my view right now as well, the DUP are in government in the North. They're the only party in government in the North. They true their confidence and supply with the Tories in London. So they have no incentive to actually get involved in power sharing in the North. How would I incentivize them to do that? I would use a carrot and a stick. I would say to them very clearly that if they don't take their ministerial seats, if they don't focus on the, 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 the food poverty, the housing poverty, the health poverty in the North, if they don't get, look at the stagnating economy that exists in the North, well then their seats will be filled by joint authority. So Southern government will start to determine who sits in those seats. And then you'll have decisions made within uh, those seats, uh, which will start to allow for things to be done. In the North, for example, the, the farmers are going to lose about a quarter of a billion pounds in cap funding from the EU. And no decisions are being made with regards to how that's going to be uh, supplemented, how that's going to be replaced. Uh, so it is very clear that we need to have an administration in the North. But the only way to do it on a functional basis is to go beyond the Good Friday Agreement, reform Stormont, and then start to deepen the devolution of powers from London to Belfast and to Ireland, to start to give a bigger role to the North-South Ministerial uh, Council so that more decisions are made on an all-Ireland basis here in Ireland. And then what you do is you, you get the, the, the parliaments North and South to meet on a regular basis to give oversight proper oversight and debate to the North-South Ministerial Council. And while you're doing that, you set up a North-South uh, Constitutional Convention, whereby all of the elected parties, North and South, can send to the size of their representation people who will start to discuss what the future of Ireland is going to look like. Like the, the New Ireland Forum that happens, but obviously focusing on uh, how do we unify this country. There's an awful lot in that. And by the way, uh, if anyone's wondering what's going on in the background, that's the sound of democracy <laughs> about to happen. Um, but just getting back there to a number of things you said there about, we'll go back to Brexit first of all. Um, the, I suppose ironically, because it now seems as if people who would have been, say, DUP supporters, farmers, business people, they're suddenly saying that their position is going to be damaging to them. So in a sense, they're weakening themselves by... Uh, being Brexiteers? Well, 
the, the really amazing thing is, if you do an analysis of the economy since partition, you'll see that the North has suffered radically because of partition. Uh, so in other words, at partition, 80% of the industrial output of Ireland happened in three counties around Belfast. Belfast was the biggest city in the country, uh, and the average income of a, of a person in the North was far higher than the South. The South was an agricultural backwater. Its only industry was beer and biscuits uh, at the time. Now, that's radically flipped. <clears throat> so the, the uh, individual income, the in, in, income per capita in the South is probably twice what it is nearly uh, in the north of Ireland. Dublin's far larger uh, than Belfast. And that's not by accident, because again, going back to the whole idea of self-determination, if you have people making decisions locally, knowing what's going on, there'll be better decisions. So, and as well, I'd say London government has only been really interested in the economy of the home counties in Britain. And that's why you see the north of England, Scotland and Wales not do uh, as well as they should. So the very fact that you have decisions made in Ireland is better for the, the, the economy in the north. But for sure, the Ulster Farmers Union there recently, who would have a lot of large you know, farmers from a Protestant and Unionist background, you know, came out and said that the, the no-deal uh, route that the DUP were on was going to be one of economic threats to their members. And they were pushing for people to seek some kind of a, a, a Theresa Mace uh, type uh, uh, situation. And actually, the, the economic sweet spot that had been achieved for the North to have access into um, the British economy and have access into the European economy was one that many countries in the world would have jumped up and down and tried to achieve for themselves, and yet, you know, the DUP cut their noses off to spite their face. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go back a long way now before I get to the next question, which was back to the Act of Union. And a lot of people don't seem to realise that after the Act of Union, Dublin almost became paralysed in terms of the production in the city. And there were an awful lot of marches and people who were objecting to it. They saw what was happening. Ireland was dying basically at the time. But of course, it was got around by banning all the marches. Yes. So really, nobody knew that people opposed what was happening at that time. Yeah, like it's, it's interesting. Like if you, if you study property in Ireland, you'll know that um, there was one of the biggest property bubbles of the time was uh, just before um, the Act of Union and in, in 1801. And that's why we have the, the Dublin is festooned with wonderful Georgian streetscapes. Um, and all that was literally punctured as soon as, as the Active Union uh, came along. And the decision makers left Dublin, and the decisions for Ireland obviously migrated uh, to a parliament who simply knew less and cared less uh, about Ireland. But with that centralised power in, in Britain, in London, and everyone, mostly people visit London, they see a wonderful city, they see it uh, you know, with lots of money, lots of wealth. But really, Belfast, as you mentioned, became more like Liverpool or Manchester. And when people go to see those places, they're red brick mausoleums almost in, in, in large part. Listen, it's, it's not an accident that economic uh, development and self-determination uh, happen uh, together. It's not an accident. And it just goes back to the human nature. People make better decisions for themselves. And the whole idea of that kind of 1798 Irish Republican uh, idea comes from Irish people making better decisions uh, for themselves. And that's the idea of, of Irish unity. And it's not a threat to anybody because everybody, like unionists, rather than having 2% influence in Westminster, would have 20% influence uh, in an All-Ireland doll, uh, for example. You would have a, a far 
bigger local economy, uh, local market, you would have far more influence in the European Union. You would have far more foreign direct investment into the north of Ireland. Um, you know, Kurt Hubner, who is an economist who has studied uh, German reunification and did a modelling for uh, Korean reunification, estimated that over an eight-year period, because of unity, there will be a 36.5 billion euro increase into the, uh, the GDP of Ireland, North and South. So that was the best case scenario, but all scenarios led him to the understanding that there would be an economic improvement. There might be some northern nationalists uh, listening who would feel that, you know, there's talk of joint authority now, which would be Britain, Ireland having joint authority over the north. Now, the situation has normally been the British government have been guarantors of the unionist community and the Irish government guarantors of the national community. But there seems to be some sense in the south in which they almost feel as if they're neutral rather than committed. I would agree 100%. Um, the British have never been shy about identifying that they were unionists. And even the name of the Conservative Party is the Conservative and Unionist Party. And uh, But in, in, this, in the south of Ireland, there's always been this instinct amongst the establishment to feel that they were actually neutral. And um, they've always felt as well that their job was to reach the handout and to accommodate with DUP. Uh, and they felt that that was probably the best way maybe to bring the DUP on board. But anybody, especially in London now and the south of Ireland, could, could see that the dysfunction of the DUP and that instinct of that rigid um, inability to make concessions and to work with people is part, in part, one of the main ingredients of the dysfunction of the whole Brexit. And it's, it's amazing that for years the DUP and that instinct has held Ireland back, but now it's holding European back, Europe back. Well, looking at uh, the way things are in the north at the moment, there are shifts in demographics as well. I mean, that's not going to do it on its own if you want to have a united Ireland. There's going to have to be another, you know, almost uh, plumossing of the unionist community too. Well, first of all, um, I, it, it is not an aim to his desire to bring one million people from a unionist background kicking and screaming into a unitary, unitary Irish state, for sure. Uh, and I said, we, we need to be looking at this in an incrementalist basis first and foremost. We need to be able to start to reduce that, the height of that wall, that border, uh, individually for people's benefits. But when it's reduced after a, a period of time, it becomes less scary to people who oppose it. It also makes the transition from uh, one constitutional position to the other a lot easier uh, to do it. Um, and also, we need to make sure that you know people from a unionist background who are discommoded now by the whole um, Brexit issue, that we actually start to build relationships with them. And if you, if you look in the north of Ireland as well, unionism is, political unionism is in a minority situation at the moment. I do believe that there should be an independence uh, referendum. I believe that's going to happen within the next two or three years. I would be suggesting that the government currently uh, invite people from across the political spectrum, across the island of Ireland, in the same way that the New Ireland Forum was created, and we actually start sitting down with people who are willing uh, create a coalition of the willing um, and make sure that these people start to sketch out what kind of Ireland would suit them. And, and, and aim to, we would be open to uh, one that accommodates uh, people's British personalities, British uh, uh, cultural backgrounds. You know, we believe we're a pluralist organisation. We believe you know, we're that 1798 Catholic, Protestant and dissenter uh, aspect. Um, and you know, as well, in the, in the structure of that state, we would be open to the fact that there could be a, a, a stormant post-unity 
that would be a parliament in a, some, some kind of federalist uh, construct, uh, which would be representative of maybe the six or the nine Ulster counties uh, in that regard. Um, so, you know, I, I think that we, it's a, it, it can be looked as a very exciting time uh, with regards how do we build a new country, a more diverse country. Um, we talk about diversity in this country a lot, you know, uh, adding that kind of Ulster unionist uh, aspect to who we are would be a big injection of uh, that diversity. And in many ways, we spoke last week about that groupthink. You know, that would be one of uh, an issue that would be a bulwark, I believe, against that groupthink that's experienced uh, in the south of Ireland at the moment. Yeah, there's one thing that, that interests me too on this is that a lot of people in the south would talk about the fact, well, we can't afford to have unity. We can't But obviously, there would have to be, I might almost call it war reparation for years to come, uh, that the British government would have to uh, pump a lot of money into the north, as you said, for this transition period. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of scaremongering put about by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael around this. Um, they they uh, estimate that there's something like 10 billion euro or 10 billion pounds coming from London to the north to keep it afloat on an annual basis. But let's look at it like this. First of all, the north of Ireland <clears throat> is not doing well economically because of the act of union between the north of Ireland and, and Britain. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that if given a chance, you know, with a, um, an all-Ireland aspect, and we, you know, the attention and the foreign direct investment and the energy in the Irish economy, the north of Ireland would do far, far better. So, you know, economic dysfunction in the north is not an argument for partition. It's actually an argument for unity because unity would be a helping factor in, in that regard. Secondly, the estimation of 10 billion is completely incorrect because a lot of that money doesn't take into consideration the corporation taxes that are paid in the north uh, but are only registered from London. <clears throat> it, it, it also apportions a cost of the British war effort and the British military, the cost of, of Westminster and, and Whitehall and, and all of, the, of, of, of those uh, British uh, aspects. Um, and we believe that if you take those out, strip those back, and then you create a functional economy, the North wouldn't be an economic uh, difficulty for the South of Ireland. But, but you make a valid point. If, you, we, if we have a situation where we're heading towards unity, the British for sure have to be involved in the transition period cost-wise, and the European Union should be involved uh, in that. Uh, and I have no doubt in the long run you'll see a flourishing 32-county uh, Irish economy. So we talked earlier on about the fact you were saying that you know Stormont has broken, the Good Friday Agreement you know, maybe isn't working the way that it should be. So to get to Irish unity, what are your proposals? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to uh, make sure that the department in the north are filled by decision makers because there is a serious problem with regards to poverty. Uh, I know people in, in the north who have been asked by the schools to, to bring for the kids to bring a tenner a week to pay for the fuel in the schools. Um, and it's just not tolerable <clears throat> that there is no government in the north of Ireland. So we have to fill those seats, and those seats should be filled uh, with southern government uh, input into them. And the second thing that needs to happen is we need to sit down and see can re how to reform Stormont, how to move on beyond the institutions uh, as they currently stand, to ones that won't fall, ones that have far deeper devolution, that have far more power, that take power in a range of issues back from London. Uh, and we need to make sure then that the, the North-South Ministerial Council is far stronger, that actually it becomes a proto-government uh, for the Isle of Ireland. Uh, and that that's given then some 
<clears throat> democratic legitimacy by a cross-border parliamentary uh, engagement between the Dáil uh, and uh, the, 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 um, the Northern Assembly. Now, right now, all of the political parties, Sinn Féin, the SDLP, the DUP and the UUP talk about resurrecting Stormont as it stands. No political party other than AIM2 are looking to go beyond uh, Stormont as it stands. And we believe that if they continue down that route, they are going to be it's going to be Groundhog Day again with regard to another uh, Stormont fall. And then parallel to all of that, the London government and the Dublin government need to set up an All-Ireland Constitutional Convention, which looks at developing uh, further integration, <clears throat> yes, on an incrementalist, stagist basis, first and foremost, but looking at an end point and saying, what kind of Ireland are we going to have? And then we need to give the people of Ireland a say on that by holding a referendum. Well, of course, that's the big question, the, the referendum on Irish unity. Um, you're in support of that? For sure. You know, the Clare Byrne show there uh, recently in the RT uh, programme carried out a poll saying that 87% of people of the South sought Irish unity in a hard Brexit situation. In the North, they figured that's about 50%, it's about 50-50. <clears throat> I did a maths on it there a while ago. The differential between those who support the union with Britain and those support Irish unity is the same population as the town of Coleraine. Now, if any of the men and women who fought and uh, for independence uh, 100 years ago and who sat in the first all realized that in our generation, this you know, centuries old you know, logical aspiration that is just and, 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 and fair of Irish people determining Irish futures was in our grasp uh, so close they would say, how come the political establishment isn't pursuing this with all its influence and might? And um, I would you know, challenge you know, Fianna Fáil, forget about your own individual party ambitions and needs. Put the country before yourselves. I would say to Sinn Féin, forget about just the resurrection of Stormont as it exists. I would say to Fianna Gael, establish, establish yourself uh, on an All-Ireland uh, basis. Become, a, become change from being a regional political party to a national political party uh, that, that represents Irish people north and south. This, this job is too big for any one political party. It has to be all of us doing this together. One surprise, just finally, um, that uh, the leader of the SDLP, when he was down at the Fianna Fáil Ardesh, seemed to pour cold water on the referendum. That was surprising. In fact, almost bizarre. It's a very strange situation. Um, the SDLP are not in good shape politically. I've been talking to a lot of people. I've Obviously, we've done meetings right across the north uh, over the last while. Many of the SDLP grassroots and support base have been waiting for Fianna Fáil to come and merge with them uh, over the last number of years. While that's been happening, there's been a, a decay in the SDLP that has been the same investment in, in ideas and policy and organizational development or even funds. And as a result, they're, they're in terrible bad shape at the moment. And of course, Fianna Fáil's so-called partnership with the SDLP is a fudge. You know, it's, it's really, uh, it's not what was demanded at Fianna Fáil Ardesh, uh, sought, sought by most uh, the SDLP grassroots. And I think it's, it, it's kind of strange. He was saying that he, he was using a quote attributed to, um, you know, the European Union that um, there would be a, a warm place in hell potentially for people who sought a referendum in Irish unity without having the same, without having a plan in place. But sure, it's not what we're saying at this moment in time. 
we need to have that plan in place. We need to do that work now. But unfortunately, the SDLP is not involved in the push for that planning. Fianna Fáil is not involved in the push for that planning. So his criticism equally applies to himself in that regard. Mm. So finally, if we had one thing or a few things to do, first of all, what would they be now? Well, I think, first of all, what we need to do is for the political parties to, uh, to, to accept that we are in a situation where unity is logical, uh, that where unity is healthy and good for the Irish people. Uh, we need to say to uh, political parties that they need to organise on, on a national basis. Like the idea that Fianna Fáil will, will stand for an Irish citizen in Monaghan town, but won't stand for an Irish citizen in Enniskillen. Like, this is incredible. We have a, there's a councillor in the north called Sarika McInnesby, who's, who's on the Fianna Fáil Ardicoria, and she has to stand as an independent in this coming local election in the north of Ireland, something which is constitutionally illegal within the Fianna Fáil uh, party uh, rules. Um, and she is standing in competition to a party that's in partnership with her own political party. So what I'm saying to, to the parties of the South, put aside your own party personal ambition and start to say <clears throat> that we need to represent Irish people north and south. Join with AIM2 in seeking the reform of the institutions of the north. Join with us in seeking this All-Ireland discourse and let's start to build solutions to this uh, Brexit threat. Heather, thank you. You've been listening to The Rising Tide, discussing Brexit and Irish unity with AIM2 leader, Heather Tobin.